Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Today we put our investing knowledge to the test with everyone's favourite festive treat, the Christmas pub quiz. I have no idea what questions are in store, but I'm prepared for anything. I challenge Roman with 12 tricky questions about money and markets in 2023. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is the Santa rally and is it real? Okay, let's get into it. So, Roman, you're putting your reputation on the line here. You really are. Yeah, I've been uh, revising, obviously, to get prepared for this episode. Well, I think the questions aren't too bad. So I'm expecting you to get 12 out of 12, I'll be honest. Okay, fingers crossed. And I should say before we start that we're recording this on the 14th of December. So the answers are correct as of today, as far as I know. All right, here we go. The first question. Which country had the best performing stock market in 2023? And this is in sterling terms. Is it A, Japan, B, Mexico, or C, Poland? No, first of all, I'm not sure of the answer. I used to do a thing where I looked at country returns on a regular basis, but I've stopped doing that. So big mistake. This is just really an educated guess. No, Japan was the darling of markets until recently. I think that was a result of monetary policy being so low in Japan compared to the rest of the world. You know, they haven't tightened. Everyone else has. But I think that's kind of fizzling out now. And this is over the course of 2023. Yeah, since the start of the year. And in sterling terms, if that makes any difference to you. Yeah, I guess it would. Now, the yen probably has weakened. And that's going to be a drag on return. And we're not talking about currency hedging the portfolio. No, what I did is I went on just ETF and sorted the indices. Now, Poland didn't do particularly well for a very long period of time, and it's got very low valuation. So that might be an interesting one for long-term investors. Mexico, I'm not really sure of, but usually Mexico is kind of an adjunct of the US. So I suspect it's done fairly well and probably been dragged up alongside the US. So I'm going to tentatively put Mexico at the top of the list. And it's because it's highly correlated with the US. And the US has done very well this year after its horrible year last year in 2022. So, okay, that's my final answer. Okay, so you've gone for Mexico. Well, I'm afraid the best performing stock market was actually Poland. Oh, that's shocking. So Poland's returned over 35% this year. Mexico, just over 23%. And Japan, just over 10%. So they've all done really well. But for some reason, Poland is streaks ahead. Poland's on fire. Well, I know they've just changed government, haven't they? They've got a more Euro-friendly government in the last few weeks. I've been reading about their political system and how lots of people are getting involved in democracy. And they're describing their parliament as being like Netflix now. Everybody watches on TV as they actually have their debates, which is really odd and great. Democracy's intended to be that way. Wouldn't that be fantastic if that were true in the UK? Well, a lot of people watched the UK politics over the last five years, but it was more of like car crash TV, wasn't it? (laughs) 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 All right, let's go to question number two. In September, which company surpassed LVMH to become Europe's largest company by market cap? Was it A, ASML, B, Novo Nordisk, or C, Volkswagen? 
I don't think it's Volkswagen. They've been a bit of a car wreck recently. Novo, obviously, they've got the effect of their weight loss drug, and I think that's certainly surged upwards. And of course, ASML is the quietly confident company which is creating these nanometer-sized chips, and it's got the technology which can etch these incredibly tiny transistors onto silicon wafers, and that's been incredibly successful, although it has had its exports to China banned by law, and that's caused a bit of a hiccup. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say probably it's going to be ASML. I'd say second would be Novo, and then third would be Volkswagen in terms of cap growth. Now, whether that's put ASML at the top of the league, I guess the starting point matters here as well. Yeah. I need a final answer. Okay, well, I'll go for ASML because it's kind of a cool company. I like it. I liked your thinking, but it's actually Novo Nordisk. That's the Danish pharmaceutical group, as you mentioned, and they make Ozempic and Vegovi, which are the two new weight loss drugs. And it's kind of staggering when you look at the take-up of these drugs, which has been so quick. Four and a half million Americans now take these GLP-1 drugs. It's not all from this one manufacturer, but other than AI, it's probably the story of the year in markets, I would say. And it's interesting, the company they surpassed as Europe's biggest, which is LVMH, which is actually Louis Vuitton, Moe Henderson, so a kind of luxury goods manufacturer, which had an amazing pandemic as people were buying goods because they were locked down at home. But now the shines kind of come off them a bit. So they've been surpassed partly because they've dipped and partly because Novo Nordisk just gone exponential. I wonder if this is going to cause huge changes because, I mean, this kind of difference in weight and the ability to control weight is going to change society, I think. If you can pretty much take a pill or an injection and lose weight, then a lot of the problems, I think, with health are going to go away. Maybe people will live longer, but it'll certainly have large effects on the population and the economy. It's interesting. If you look at the earnings calls, it's being mentioned more and more and especially by junk food retailers, are saying, you know, our (laughs) profits may be hit by this. And there seems to be an effect on share prices of fast food companies and food manufacturers. Because, you know, demand might go down because the way these drugs work is it suppresses your appetite, basically. Oh, no, I was hoping it would be the opposite. I could just take one of these and hit McDonald's. If you invent that drug, you would really be rich. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go on to question number three. The magnificent seven stocks have powered returns this year. We've talked about it so many times, haven't we, Roman? Mm-hmm. But if you zoom out a bit, since the start of 2022, only three of them have outperformed the S&P 500, surprisingly. Which three? Since 2022? Yeah, so over like two years instead of just this one year, because they had a really bad 2022, didn't they? So we've got NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google... Meta and Tesla. That's your seven. And I think probably Microsoft is one of the goodies because its results have been very good. So I think that's probably one of them. I'll give you that. Microsoft is one of them. I think you're going to have to get all three to get the point here. Oh, you're a tough quiz host, Michael. (laughs) NVIDIA, because Laura gloats about that every time she talks about her investments. And uh, it's still doing well, I know, because she still looks happy. Yeah, NVIDIA is the best performer over those two years of all of them. And now you've got one more to find. I don't know if it's one you'll be happy about. Is it Meta? Because I know they got completely crushed in the tech wreck and they have recovered a bit since then. No, Meta got too crushed. They're still 
almost 5% down since the start of 2022. It's actually Apple. Apple? Oh no. Yeah. But why? Why do people keep on buying this stuff, this overpriced junk, which isn't necessarily the best tech? Because it works. It's simple. It's beautifully sold. Their marketing is amazing. Mm. All right, let's go on to question number four. There are more than 10,000 mutual funds and ETFs in the US. But how many of these are run by portfolio managers who own no shares in their own fund? Is it A, 9%, B, 24%, or C, 57%? So how many portfolio managers have no skin in the game? I'd say it would be a surprising answer. So I'd go for the high number, which is 57. Yeah, you're right. It surprised me, though. Isn't it shocking? You should always eat your own cooking. It's, it's always a good idea to promote your own products. But how can that be so? I'm surprised that it's so high. I remember Jim O'Shaughnessy always said that he bought all of his own funds and he made a point of it. And I thought, yeah, that's quite right. Yeah, I read this on the blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, and they'd worked with Morningstar to figure this all out. It was almost 6,000 ETFs where, yeah, the portfolio managers had no skin in the game whatsoever. How could you not believe in your own product? Or maybe they just run so many products that it would just be crazy to buy them all. I don't know. Did you hear of this when you were in the industry? Like, I don't know, a hedge fund manager or a manager who run an ETF just having all their own money in safe passive funds while still selling their risky product to the market? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the argument wasn't necessarily that they didn't believe in the product. It was more, you know, I'm so busy, I don't even see my wife and kids that, you know, it's just simpler to do this. Yeah. Well, at least you got a question, right? Yeah. So you got one out of the first four. Right, here we go. Question five. What did US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen accidentally eat while on an official visit to Beijing in August? Was it A, chicken testicles? B, live mini octopuses, or C, psychedelic mushrooms? I think the funniest one would be the psychedelic mushrooms, so I'll go for that answer. You are right. She did eat psychedelic (laughs) mushrooms. (laughs) Maybe this is what's caused the thaw in relations between China and the US of late. That would be amazing to see Janet Yellen on uh, psychedelic mushrooms. I mean, she's 77 years old and looks like this sweet old woman. (laughs) Yoda. Yeah. But it's interesting, there's this magic mushroom-based dish called Zhangzhou Qing. I've probably pronounced that wrong. Or Sea Hand Blue, if you translate it. And Yellen said afterwards, I was not aware that these mushrooms had hallucinogenic properties. I learned that later. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly, this story went viral in China and the restaurant chain where she ate sold out of this dish across loads of its chains within hours of the story. Everyone just went and tried it. (laughs) She later tried to row back on the statement by going like, oh, it was cooked well enough that they weren't so magic anymore, but still funny. Yeah, I always tried to steer clear of the really uh, biological stuff when I went to China, although the food was just so good. I mean, unbelievable. And my most exciting time was when I went for uh, one of these dim sum, which has got like soup in it. So it's got a straw that comes in it. I was so excited. And then you kind of suck out the uh, soup and then you can eat the dim sum. It sounds pretty different to the food we get down in Chinatown in London. Yeah. Which is just sort of MSG (laughs) slop with rice. 
But the trick is you've got to go with someone who's local in order to get the best dim sum because she just ordered the most amazing things and nothing that was sort of octopusy or um, alive. She knew I didn't have the stomach for that. Or psychedelic. Or psychedelic. <laughs> Not before you go and see a client, preferably, yeah. All right, question number six. This one's right in your wheelhouse, Roman. What does OPEC stand for? Is it A, Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, B, Oil Producer Export Community, or C, the Oil Price Enhancement Cartel? Well, it's not C. All right, so that leaves you with A or B, Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries or Oil Producer Export Community. I'd say the first one because it sounds a bit more like an acronym. Yeah, it is the first one. And I only know this because I walked around Vienna and saw it emblazoned on the side of a building, which I guess is where their headquarters are or something. Yeah, strangely, Vienna seems to be a headquarters for that kind of thing, doesn't it? And obviously, my wife is Austrian, so I get taken around Vienna a lot. And I'm a huge Mozart fan, so I'd love to go to Vienna. Ah, but Mozart, Salzburg claims Mozart, which is where we spend most of our time. Even cooler. All right, well, you got it right. And that's now three out of six. You're on a roll now, Robin. Oh dear, I'm not doing very well, am I? Should we go to number seven? Yeah. In India, Burger King, McDonald's and Subway all removed one ingredient from their menus this year. Was it A, tomatoes, B, orange juice, or C, beef? Now my guess would be C, which is beef, because Hindus obviously aren't allowed to eat beef, but you'd have thought they knew that before they moved into those countries. I know there's a question about using beef tallow in French fries. You know a lot about beef in India. Yeah, I had lots of Indian friends, so I kind of was aware of it. Cows are sacred, aren't they, over there? True. So I can see you're thinking. Now, tomatoes, we had a shortage in the UK. I can't imagine that was true in, in those countries. What was the other one? B was orange juice. Hmm. Has there been a problem with orange juice? I remember there was a story about a shortage of orange juice recently. There was a problem with the crops in Florida, although they probably produce the oranges locally there, don't they, for those kind of products? <laughs> I love how much thought you're putting into this stupid quiz I created. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll go for beef because that's definitely one that they don't want to use in their ingredients. Well, in a sense, you're right. The beef isn't on the menu, but I don't think it's ever been on the menu, so it wasn't removed this year. It's actually A, tomatoes. And it was because of inflation. There was a tomato supply crisis in India because of monsoon rains disrupting the crops. And prices surged 450%. So it got pulled from all the burgers and people were posting on social media, where's my tomato? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if anyone should want a tomato in a burger, but it wasn't there. I know they have onion rights in India because it's so important to their cooking and their diet that uh, if the prices go up, it causes political unrest. If there was one thing I would never riot about, it would be onions. <laughs> I can't stand them. Devil's toenails. Just stop putting them in food. Oh, but it's in everything. I mean, you can't eat French food without having some form of onion. I'm okay if it's chopped up really fine. Anyway, the answer was tomatoes in this case. Question eight. What is the official inflation rate in Argentina? Is it A, 34%, B, 77%, or C, 161%. This is the annual inflation rate. Now, this one I think I know because I've been reading about their president and they often talk about inflation. I think it's C. 
You're right. 161%. That's on the verge of hyperinflation, right? Yeah, I wonder if he is going to make a difference because he's obviously shaking up the system a lot. But talking about scrapping the central bank, I think that's kind of crazy. He's not going to do it, but he'll talk about it. We can't blame him for this inflation, right? He's inherited this. Yeah. But whether he can get rid of it with his radical policies, that's another matter. If you look at the stats, the monthly inflation rate was almost 13% in November alone. That would be horrible as an annual rate. It was just in one month. Yeah, that's getting towards hyperinflation, isn't it? Anyway, let's hope Argentina turns it around. They've had a real tough time, haven't they, for a long time now economically. If you go back 100 years, they were one of the richest countries. Yeah, they've basically destroyed their economy. They're out of all financial markets. I mean, you can't find an index, really, that's going to have lots of Argentinian assets in it, or any, in fact. But the good news is that you got the question right, which is what matters. (laughs) Thank you. All right, number nine. In March, the London Metal Exchange discovered bags of nickel stored in its warehouses that were instead full of what? A. Rocks. B, coffee beans, or C, cocaine? Well, it's not C. That would have definitely been a story. I know the way they tested whether it had nickel in it was to kick the bag, I seem to remember. So my guess would be rocks. It was rocks. But it was kind of a big story anyway in markets that the London Metal Exchange kind of has one job, right? Which is to safely (laughs) store the metal that's underpinning all these contracts. My favourite story was the knockout of the uh, leveraged nickel funds. So when nickel surged, it knocked out the three times positive leveraged fund. And then when it fell, it fell by more than 33% in a day. So the three times fund lost more than 100%. So whichever way you bet on nickel, you were going bankrupt? 100% loss, yeah. I mean, we should say that the bags of rocks they found represented just 0.14% of live nickel inventories. But still, the rocks should really be 0% of your nickel inventories, I would say. So that would be a good job. Nickel checker. (laughs) Well, basically my job. I go around, I kick the bags, I look for the nickel. Well, I liked that they said they'd implemented new operating procedures, which included such things as weighing the bags. (laughs) Just think, how high-tech are we going to be? Just weigh the bags. (laughs) All right, let's go on to question number 10. What percentage of NFT transactions can be attributed to wash trading? Is it A, 28%, B, 58%, or C, 98%? So wash trading is a way of pumping up the price by selling something to yourself. So it's like a fake trade that pushes up the price. We wouldn't see much of that in NFTs though, would we? Surely. Yeah, I mean, it's such a completely robust and transparent market, completely trustworthy, yeah. So I'll go for the top number, which is, what was it? 98%. So I'll go for the middle number, right? So I think that was around 50%. I think you're trying to get your answers based on the psychology of me writing quiz questions rather than the numbers. Well, I've just got no idea for this one. You're right. It's 58%, which is the middle number. So this was according to Dune Analytics who looked at all the trading activity for NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain. And they found that, yeah, wash trading accounted for nearly 60% of the total in 2022. And what they said is it wasn't easy to identify. So they had four criteria. Firstly, any trades of NFTs between the same wallet address, obviously. That's just like transparently wash trading. Secondly, 
back and forth trades of the same NFT between two different wallet addresses. So just shuffling it back and forth. They said, that's probably wash trading. Thirdly, a wallet address that purchases the same NFT three times or more. Again, pretty good indicator. <laughs> Why do they keep buying the same monkey picture? Or finally, if a buyer and seller in an NFT transaction had wallets that were first funded by the same wallet. Oh, yeah. So it kind of showed that they were established in the same way. Seems like a pretty robust process. And yeah, they found that more than half of trades were wash trading. That's terrible, isn't it? Over the lifetime, $30 billion worth of NFT trading volume seems to be this phenomenon. But let's face it, there's not a lot of trading in these things anymore, is there? You're right that the NFT market has fallen away. But then perhaps with crypto rallying again, it'll come back. Yeah, I'm not going to jump into the uh, bored apes yet. But another phenomenon of this year is AI, which takes us to question number 11. How many weekly active users does ChatGPT have? A, 10 million, B, 50 million, or C, 100 million? Now, it's a global thing. The US population, probably, I don't know, 10% of them. Okay, so I'd probably go for the uh, top end of it. I'd go for C. You're right, 100 million. And what's interesting is that, according to a UBS study, ChatGPT is the fastest growing consumer application in history. Nothing's ever grown faster. The thing is, it's so useful. It does everything. Apparently, according to Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, again, after briefly being kicked out, 92% of Fortune 500 companies are now using their software. I think it's the story of the year, isn't it? This and the weight loss drugs are the two big changes we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm already getting to the point where when I do research for something, I just make AI a critical part of it. It just makes it so much faster. Yeah, it's very quickly becoming a standard tool, which we turn to. But you know, Michael, what this means is we're just moving towards the world of Star Trek, where you can say, computer. Don't kill me. <laughs> Should we go to the final question? Go on. Number 12. Who said the following? I'm very sceptical of books. I don't want to say that no book is ever worth reading, but I actually do believe something pretty close to that. I think if you wrote a book, you fucked up. And it should have been a six-paragraph blog post. Was it A, Elon Musk? B, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was the founder of the FTX crypto platform? Or C, Adam Neumann, who was the founder of WeWork? I don't think it was Sam Bank-Friedman because he was quite nerdy and he went to college, so he must have read lots of books. <laughs> yeah, but did he like them? Probably not. Uh, and then... Elon Musk, that would be surprising if he didn't read books. So you're going through a process of elimination here. So I think it must be C. I think it must be... Adam Neumann. It must be Adam Neumann, yeah. Well, he is a weird guy. But no, it's Sam Bankman-Fried, who is now what? waiting in jail with only books to keep him company. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bloke. I just sort of wonder, with the massive Bitcoin rally this year, if he's just thinking, oh man, if I could have kept my Ponzi running just a little longer, it would have all worked out. Like all my trades would have been positive again. But you know why I hate him, Michael? Why is that? Because he lost me another question. Yeah, it's true. And Romin, how many do you think you got right out of the 12? I don't even know that, mate. It was seven. So not bad. Not bad. Better than blind chance. But Sam Bankman-Fried is dead to me. I love reading books. 
It's funny, my sister just bought me one for Christmas and I just forgot how wonderful it is to smell it and feel it as you read it. It's a wonderful thing. I know what you mean, but also, why are you getting Christmas presents? It's the 14th of December right now. Oh, sorry, it was birthday present, December the 8th. (laughs) Can't even get your own question right. Now, fortunately, you don't have to rely on my accuracy at answering questions. You can learn from our community. To join us and to learn about investing from the rest of the community, not from me, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is the Santa rally and is it real? So as we all know, Santa Claus is real, but is the Santa rally real? Now, I thought it was just the last month of the year. I thought it was just a December rally. But in fact, there's a very specific definition. And it refers to the last five trading days of December and the first two trading days of January. That's when you tend to see a very big rally in stocks. And I think it's primarily about the US. What, so it is a real thing? Well, looking at the stats, I mean, I did this in a blog a while back when I first started Pension Craft. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And for the UK, actually, it's much clearer than it is for the US. So if you look at the interquartile range, this is going to get statsy, I'm sorry. Yeah. But if you look at the monthly returns month by month for every market, and you do that for the FTSE 100, the 25th percentile is positive for the UK. In other words, less than 25% of the time does the market fall in December. So the Santa rally is bigger in the UK than it is for the US. The 25th percentile in the US is just below zero. So this is for the whole month of December. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. But like you say, it was first coined, this term, the Santa rally, for those seven trading days over Christmas and New Year. And it was first spotted, I think, and documented in 1972 by Yale Hirsch, who noticed that the S&P 500 had gained an average of 1.5% during that seven-day period from 1950 to 1971, which is, you know, quite a big gain on average for just seven days. And interestingly, if you look at that month-by-month breakdown, there's a September fall, which is both in the US and in the UK. So in both countries, you find that the median return is negative on those months. So we should sit out September then? I don't know, maybe that's something to do with taxes. Some people say that the Santa Claus rally is partly due to the tax year and tax loss harvesting in the US. But I guess it could also just be psychological. Everyone's a little bit merry, aren't they, in December and willing to take a gamble. And you combine that with a little bit of a thin market because the traders are away, so the volume's down. So if there is a big change in volume, trading volume, it can move the market a lot. And I guess some people will be getting end-of-year bonuses and things like that, which maybe they plough into the market. And also, if people are aware of this phenomenon of a Santa Claus rally, it's something they've heard of, maybe it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and everyone's expecting the market to go up in December, so everyone gets into the market. What is quite noticeable is the small dispersion of stock returns in December. It's the least dispersed month of all of them for the US, not so much for the UK. So I'd say Santa is actually crushing vol because he's a little bit portly. <laughs> he hasn't had his Wagovi yet. I remember back in 2008, people started talking about the Santa rally again, because obviously it was a massive bear market, one of the big stock market crashes of our lifetimes. But for that seven-day period around the end of the year, the S&P 500 gained 7.5% out of nowhere. 
and then afterwards resumed its fall until bottoming out in March, I think it was, 2009. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah, Santa brought a little bit of cheer if you could have got in and out. What I also thought was interesting was that Yale Hirsch, who was the guy that first coined the term Santa Rally, he actually saw it as kind of a predictor for the year ahead in stock markets. And he said, if Santa Claus should fail to call, bears may come to broad and wall, which is where the stock exchange is in New York. I remember last year we didn't really get a Santa Rally, but the returns this year have been amazing. And what about next year then? Do you think it's going to carry on? I think it might well do, because if you look at the December meeting of the Federal Reserve, the press conference, you could just tell the smug grin on Jerome Powell's face. And he said, oh, we're not going to declare victory. But he was quietly air punching as he left the podium, I'm sure of it. Yeah, he didn't declare victory, but he did start letting off party poppers, which kind of (laughs) gave the game away. (laughs) But if inflation stays low and we don't get a recession and earnings continue to be pretty good, I guess why wouldn't stocks continue to rally? It would need something to pop the optimism. Yeah, and it's been fundamentally justified because earnings growth has still been holding up and it's partially justified the very strong rally we've had. Not completely, perhaps. We have seen valuations rise. But not to extreme levels yet. And now that we're talking about a turning point in Federal Reserve policy, we're talking about cutting rates rather than raising rates, then we're just back to the same old story, the Magnificent Seven, tech rally, AI hype. But it's nice to end the year on an optimistic note, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And I'm just hoping we're going to get a year without another crisis. I don't think the world can stomach another one. Yeah. And what I would like to say is to thank all of the people who've been listening to our podcast and sharing in our conversations. I think you realise that Michael and I really enjoy recording these sessions and we're just glad it's given you a little bit of joy as well. Yeah. And what I would like to say is like, share and rate the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and have a Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.